Look with me, please, in your Bibles at Genesis 35. Genesis 35, I think that's on page 34 if you're using the Red Pew Bible. Genesis chapter 35. Jacob's time on the center stage of Genesis and of history is coming to a close. He will live on for most of the rest of the book of Genesis, but it is his children who will come to the forefront and the focal point of the book of Genesis. Genesis 35 is the last time that Jacob will be the center of attention. It is, to a large degree, the narrator's closing comments on Jacob's life. If you want to know how to close out life well, how to live out the golden years of life, then it is necessary to know the Bible, for it alone is the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. That is, for what we must believe and how we must live. So I invite you to hear now the word of Almighty God, beginning in Genesis 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household, that would be his wives and children, and to all who were with him, that would be the slaves that they acquired in Shechem, and as we will learn, a few others. Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone." So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as a few of the women in the congregation try to casually slip off their earrings, I want to let you know that we will not be hosting a jewelry burying ceremony after worship today. God does not hate jewelry. I actually encountered a woman this past week who was once taught, based on this passage, that she should not wear jewelry. But I will remind you that Abraham himself sent lavish amounts of jewelry to be gifted to Rebecca, his future daughter-in-law, and she, in turn, wore them joyously and often. God doesn't hate jewelry. So what's going on here? Well, archaeologists reveals to us that these ancient peoples, they would adorn their idols with earrings, nose rings, etc. The there, there, they took the rings out of their ears, means they took the rings out of the idol's ears. It's grammatically fitting, and it certainly fits the wider context more accurately. They were giving up not only the idols, but the adornments of their idols. So you can all relax and enjoy your jewelry. Verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. You'll recall the close of the last chapter. Uh, Jacob's sons had uh, carried out a murderous revenge plot, and Jacob was worried that the surrounding peoples would repeat the cycle of revenge. And apparently his fears were justified, but God steps in to protect him as he gets out of town and moves to Bethel. 
And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, God of Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. What happens next in verse 8 can seem like a strange factoid that has been randomly dropped into the narrative, as we will see it is not. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be, shall your name be called trickster, but Godfighter shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your, your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel, which means house of God. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. I will remind you, babies do not come out with pink or blue uh, uh, caps. That she knows the gender, the sex of the baby, in the midst of labor is an indication that it's a breach birth. And her soul was departing, for she was dying. She called his name Ben-Oni, that is, son of my distress. But his father called him Ben-Amin, literally son of my right hand, symbolically meaning son of my strength. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Like verse 8, eight verse 22 can leave you thinking, okay, that happened, but why is it here? And like verse 8, I will say only this, nothing. We'll come back to it. Let's move on. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. That is the summary of Jacob's future, and now we see a final look at his past. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Our author has routinely 
put obituaries in where they served his literary purposes. If we were to do the math and write out a timeline, what we'd see is that Isaac actually lives 12 years past the sale of Joseph into slavery in Egypt. In other words, Isaac actually lives to roughly chapter 39 of Genesis. But his death is brought in here to kind of round out the life of Jacob. Jacob, who has been the father figure, who has been the head of the household, who has been at the forefront of everything with the death of Isaac, Jacob now becomes the grandfatherly figure and attention will be given to the next generation. But as has been the pattern of our narrator throughout the book of Genesis, before he moves on to the generation of the chosen line, he will give a cursory look at the generations of that line not chosen. And that's chapter 36. We are not going to read every word of chapter 36, for most of it is just names that have been lost to history. But while those names are meaningless to us, the message of the chapter is not. So we will take a look at the forest, as it were, rather than the trees. And I will skip over some of the list of names, and I'll try to make sure we all stay together. <clears throat> so verse, chapter 36, verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Edom would be the nation that arose from the descendants of Esau. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites. Omitting the list of his sons and picking up in verse 6. Verse 6, then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. What follows in verses 9 to 19 are two lists. The first are Esau's descendants arranged according to his wives. The second is a list of tribal chiefs who arose in the line of Esau. And considering the context of those two lists... The list that begins in verse 20 is rather startling. Look at verse 20. These, what will follow, are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. A genealogy of those already living in the land, which would later become Edom, indicates that these people were not destroyed, but they lived on. In other words, Esau's descendants lived with and among these people. The consensus, the scholarly consensus, is that these two groups became one people. One side note that may be of interest to some of you, several of the names that follow verse 20 are also found in the book of Job. And though the time and place of Job's life is very much a mystery, there is a loosely held assumption among many Bible scholars that he lived around about the time of the patriarchs, where we are in Genesis, and that he may very well have lived south of the Dead Sea in the region which would become Edom. Picking up again in verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. And the list of names that comes next is by far the most interesting, historically speaking. But there are just two points that I want to bring out for us right now. 
uh, 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 first, the list suggests national stability. How do we arrive at that? Well, there are no names of obvious outsiders. There are no Arabian names or Egyptian names on the list. Secondly, there are no obvious gaps. The, the, the generations fill the expected time period. In other words, this li- uh, 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 list of kings in Edom seems to have spanned the history of Edom up until this point. In other words, they were a stable nation not often conquered by outside powers. The second thing that I want to bring out is in verse 38. Look down at verse 38. Shaul died. And Baal Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. If you are unfamiliar with the Bible, Baal is the name of one of the chief pagan gods of the region. Region. The descendants of Esau eventually took the names of pagan gods. Now to verse 43, which is the summary review of chapter 36. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places, in the land of their possession. Let's pray. Father, your children want to hear from you a story. And you have told us one here. Now let us understand its meaning. Let us see in it your guidance for our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Does your life have meaning, purpose, value? Such a question um, is generally asked with an eye on the future. In other words, what we're really asking is, is what we're doing now, will it make a difference? What will be accomplished in and through us in the future? And when we're younger, that question tends to uh, uh, loom really kind of entirely over and within us. In other words, when we are younger, we, we tend to be asking that question, what will we accomplish that will outlive us? What will we accomplish that will be of significance? But as we age that question tends to take on a multi-generational component. I may not have changed the world, but, but look at what my kids are doing. The judgment of our life's meaning and worth can tend to include our offspring, especially as we get older. And when it comes to evaluating one's, uh, 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 the worth of one's life, I think we know the experience of feeling like our lives and their significance don't measure up. And at a certain point in life, as we measure the success of our lives through our children and grandchildren, well, their apparent lack of success can feel like ours. If our children don't achieve as we think they should, it's because we failed them as parents. If the grandchildren are not successful, well, that's on us as well because we probably messed up their parents. And when we self-evaluate, we never do so in isolation against an absolute scale. Rather, we always grade on a curve. How's everybody else doing? How am I doing compared to everybody else? How are my kids and grandkids doing compared to everybody else's kids and grandkids? And when we judge ourselves against other people, 
in the context of whether you know, it can be a class reunion or Facebook post, whatever the context, when we listen to what everyone else's children and grandchildren are doing, how they are graduating as valedictorians and earning scholarships and getting great jobs and living in beautiful houses and dating beautiful people, doesn't feel like our offspring and our lives measure up. My descendants, my clan, well, let's see. Uh, my grandson John managed to squeeze his bachelor's degree into seven years. <clears throat> That's impressive. Madison, she lives in a teeny tiny little apartment because I don't know who, what she was thinking when she married that clown. And we begin to feel like our lives are failures as we judge the lives of the generations against our friends. We measure ourselves against our peers, and we don't feel like we measure up. And as we age, there can be a sense of helplessness to do anything about our legacy, hopelessness that we can even have a legacy that matters. In the final years, we have to ask ourselves, what constitutes finishing well, and how do we do it? Chapter 35 is the account of the golden years of one man's life. And chapter 36 looks at the legacy of his brother. And what a different picture these two chapters paint. Though Jacob will live on through most of the rest of Genesis, as we mentioned, this really is the last time he'll be the main focus point of the book. And what we have here is a summation of his golden years, of his retirement era. And what a roller coaster of a summation it is. Recall that at the end of chapter 34, Jacob is depicted as this disengaged father who's losing control of the family. His daughter has been humiliated, his sons have perpetrated a terrible revenge plot, and none of them respect him as the head of household, but they argue with him. And then here at the beginning of chapter 35, God shakes Jacob awake spiritually and says, hey, get up, go back to church, back to worship, go back to Bethel. It was at Bethel that I first showed myself to you, and it's at Bethel, the house of God, that we are going to reconnect. And so after a period of spiritual apathy, Jacob is renewed in religious zeal. Now, there is this old saying, the same sun which softens wax hardens clay. The same sun which softens wax hardens clay. Life's difficulties have a way of either softening us or hardening us. Jacob is softened. God's word comes to him in that low time, and he responds in obedience. Are you in position to hear God's word when you most need it? It is a sad thing that many in the church, when they are at their lowest in life, perhaps following the divorce, or in the midst of grievous backsliding, or when their children have embarrassed them, perhaps not through murderous revenge, but embarrassed them nevertheless. At the times that we most need to hear a word of encouragement from God, these are precisely the times that many of us are least likely to be in church. We are ashamed of our lives. We feel like spiritual failures compared to everyone else who's got their lives together. And whether or not you realize it, when the heat of life comes, if you pull back from God and his word and his church, you are being 
hardened. Do not let that happen. Do not be like that. Seek God while he may be found. Be softened by the difficulties of life. More open to God's instruction and leading in life. Not close off to him and his church. Run to the church even more when things are tough. Jacob is softened toward God, religiously renewed, spiritually revitalized. He hears God's call to him, and rather than saying, I can't go back, look at my life, he packs up the family and prepares to go to Bethel, God's house. Literally, they're moving to attend a faithful church. Let me say that again. Jacob is not packing up to get away from the snow, He's not packing up so they can go to a new job. He's packing up to go to a faithful church. Oh, that more of us would have our lives built around the church, faithful churches. The impact of God's word in his life is more than just a return to church. It has a wider spiritual impact. You notice in the midst of those preparations, he issues a decree to rid his family of their foreign gods. Now, why exactly that came out? We can remember that the last time this family packed up for a major move, Rachel stole her father's household gods. So maybe that triggered it in Jacob's mind. Maybe just in the, 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 the dishevelment, and I was really stunned, Dishevelment is an actual word, according to my spell checker. Kind of cool. In the dishevelment of packing, laying everything out, getting it all organized to pack it up, maybe if finally Jacob had laid plainly before him how many pagan gods there really were in his household. Perhaps they came with those women who were taken hostage from Shechem. Perhaps they just crept in from the surrounding culture. Whatever the case, Jacob now takes action to rid his family of these foreign gods. He is finally willing to address the spiritual mess that's in his household. Brothers and sisters, if you've ever wondered what repentance looks like, this is a really good illustration. Tears are not repentance. Oaths of turning over a new leaf are not repentance. New Year's resolutions and the best of intentions are not repentance. Repentance is walking away from sin, leaving it behind you, putting it in the past, and doing so with finality and purpose and certainty. Jacob buries their gods. He holds a funeral service so that the pagan gods will be dead to him and his household. And in so doing, he removes all temptation to return to them. That sin is in the ground at, that sin is in the ground at Shechem and they're moving to Bethel. There's no going back to that sin. It is behind taking severe steps to put sin behind us, that's repentance. You're not sure that that's right? Well, recall how Jesus worded it. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Go to extremes to make sin a thing of the past. And by the way, based on Jacob's example, there appears to be no age limit 
on repentance. It is not that we repent at our rebirth and then never do it again. Rather, repentance is a, ought to be a routine part of the Christian life. For we are going to find ourselves constantly falling into sin and constantly needing to turn our back on it, to bury it and leave it behind us. This is a great illustration of repentance. So Jacob is reinvigorated, spiritually speaking. He's repenting of sin and heading to Bethel, the house of God, to worship. He's putting sin behind him and returning to the church. And if American Christianity has taught us anything, it's this. If we are on fire for God, if we impress him with our zeal, if we read our Bibles and pray regularly, if we give generously to the right TV ministry, if we do these things, our lives are going to be perfect. That has got to be the lesson of American Christianity over the last 50 years. God is going to protect us from all harm, from all pain, from all grief, right? I mean, after all, God is all about my comfort and my pleasure, isn't he? That sells books, far too many books. But our narrator is weaving a story of real life, of highs and lows, joy and sorrow, jubilation and grief. And real life is brutal at times. As the account of Jacob's life wraps up and his sins come to the fore, we are getting a summation of Jacob's final years, and it is a roller coaster ride. Thus, The mountaintop camp revival of verse 7, bearing the idols, going to Bethel, is followed by verse 8. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. That we have the record of Deborah's death rather than Rebecca's death points to the harsh realities of Jacob's life. You see, while God may always answer prayers, he doesn't always answer them the way we would like. Jacob never reunited with his beloved mother, Rebecca. Recall the close relationship Jacob had with Rebecca, how she favored him, how she doted on, on him. Ironically, and this is not the last dose of irony in this chapter, ironically, Rebecca sent Jacob to Padam Aram in her words, so she would not be bereft of him. But that's exactly what happens. She dies never reuniting with Jacob. The funeral of Rebecca's nurse is noted because that nurse, Deborah, is the surrogate, the stand-in for Rebecca in Jacob's life. His mother died during his time in Padanarum, and all that he has left of that wonderful woman and his relationship to her is the nurse, who has now also died. In fact, she died once they reached Bethel, the place of spiritual renewal. In other words, there's another painful irony. Just as Jacob is at this high time spiritually in his life, all the difficulties of life are brought rushing back to him when he's reminded that he never reunited with his mother. Rebecca sent Jacob to Padam Aram to flee Esau's threat so she would not be bereft of him, but that is exactly the consequence of her sin against her husband and eldest son. Rebecca dies, never seeing Jacob again, 
never seeing any of the covenant grandchildren that would come through him. As our narrator rounds out the life of Jacob, verse 8 is the very sad close on a life of a mother and grandmother who never posted photos of her grandchildren, not merely because photography had not yet been invented, but because she never met those grandchildren. This is why Jacob names the tree Alan Bakuth, Oak of Weeping. The high of returning to Bethel, of going back to God, back to worship, back to the place of meeting, back to church, is met with the passing of Deborah and all the bitter memories that recalls of life's pain. I said we were on a roller coaster, so from that low, we ascend to verses 9 through 15. God appears to Jacob again. He restates the name change. Your name has been Trickster. No longer shall you be known by that negative trait. From now on, you shall be known as God Fighter the one willing to wrestle with God and demand of God a blessing. And just as Jacob, sorry, as God appeared to Abraham multiple times, often in conjunction with the trials in Abraham's life, so God is coming to an aging Jacob, a man fearful of his place in the world, of losing control even of his own household. He's a man stinging with painful reminders of loss. And amid life's pain, God steps in at Bethel and says, Remember, I've changed you. You're not who you once were. It's amazing how life can make us feel like nothing has changed. The difficulties and pain of life make it feel like we're just going on like, oh, our lives aren't any better than the lives of the unsaved. They're just as difficult. God steps in and reminds him, it's not about how this life feels. I've changed you. I've saved you. You're no longer Jacob. You are now Israel. God has stepped in and reminded Jacob of his place in God's plans and God's economy, picking him up, spiritually speaking. You know, we owe God worship, and that's the reason we should begin each week in church, simply to show his supremacy in our lives, period, full stop. If you get nothing out of it, that's not the point that you should get anything out of it. We're here to say to God, you're the most important thing. You're the place where we're going to begin our week. Giving attention to you and your word, that's what we're going to get done first so that nothing else gets in the way. We owe God worship simply because he is God. But this week, you're going to pick out a card for your mom, pick out some flowers for mom, make plans to call mom. And you're going to do it because she's your mother and you owe it to her, full stop. But hopefully in reading through the different cards, you're standing there in the store and you're like, that one doesn't fit mom, that one doesn't fit, oh, that one fits mom. And it reminds you of who your mother is and what she's done for you and the good that she has bestowed on you. You're buying her that card because you owe it to her because she's mom. And yet in picking it out, You're blessed to be reminded of how she loved you. That is what worship is like also. We come not to get, but to give. And yet in the giving, we are reminded of what God has done for us, of who he is and what he's provided for us. And we are blessed through it. That's what this table is. It is God. We come out of submission to God and giving him the worship that is owed him. But he says, hey, You're here, and I want to remind you of your importance to me. 
that no matter what happened this past week, no matter what lows your life has been through, you still belong at my table. You are still a part of my family. And just as the covenant was renewed with Jacob here in these verses 9 through 15, so the covenant is renewed with us at the table of the Lord. We owe God worship because he is God. But in his goodness to us, that worship also has benefit to us. The low of Dinah's humiliation and the son's murderous revenge, the high of repentance and a return to worship at God's house, the low of being reminded that he never reunited with his mother, the high of God coming back and restating the covenant, reminding him of his place in God's plans, all of that, that up and down, now results in another low in verse 16. When Jacob and Rachel were newlyweds, you remember the, the, the battle of the babies she had with her sister Leah? Rachel once screamed at Jacob in Genesis 30, verse 1, Give me children or I will die. Ironically, it's having a child. It's in having a child that she dies. How painful this has to be in Jacob's life. When Rachel, his beloved wife, was was young and healthy, she could not have children. Now, over the past few months, The way of women, as Rachel once stated it, has ceased with her. And at her age, that can only mean one thing, menopause. But then a few months go by, and that spare tire that she had begun to put on, that love handle that comes at that time and that age, kicks. And it dawns on her she's pregnant. And she had been down, because she was going to live out her life having just the one child. But it's not menopause, it's pregnancy, and so she's excited again. There's another child coming. And the last few months of the pregnancy go by, and she can't wait for that baby to be born. Jacob cannot wait for his darling wife, Rachel, to have another baby. And as the baby is born, Rachel dies. How difficult is that? How rough is real life? You know what Jacob is feeling. Seriously, God, is this your idea of a sense of humor? My wife wanted children all her life, and now you give her a child and it kills her? Do you think this is funny, God? And yet somehow in the midst of that painful moment, Jacob finds the strength to rename the boy. He's not going to go through life with the name son of my sorrow, son of my despair. But rather, he will be the son of my strength, Benjamin. Jacob's life is a difficult life. It's a real life. Jacob returned to the church with zeal, and Deborah, his only connection to his mother, died. God appears to him, comforting him and reassuring him of the great covenant promises, and his beloved wife, Rachel, dies. A new son, a joy, comes from her death, but his birthday will forever be tinged with sadness. Chapter 35, this closing summary of Jacob's life, is a tapestry interwoven with pain and joy, laughter and tears. 
But the death of Rachel is not merely a time of mourning and grief. It is also a time of familial upheaval and uncertainty. Who will take her place as Jacob's most beloved wife? Will Leah finally become the wife of first rank? That might seem like the obvious outcome. But you look at the attention that Jacob gave to his mother's nurse as a sort of stand-in, as a sort of surrogate for his beloved mom. Perhaps Jacob's affections will fall on Rachel's maid as a surrogate or stand-in for Rachel. Will Jacob choose Leah or Bilhah? You know, Jerry Springer died this past week, and one has to wonder if he ever tried to get this family on his show. Reuben, whose mother is Leah, takes steps he believes will disqualify Bilhah and assure his mother's place atop the family. This is why verse 22 is where it is. Reuben has sex with Bilhah. If we were ever to assume rape where it wasn't explicitly stated, this would be a good place to do so. His status as the eldest son of the family gives him authority over the household. Her status as a servant in the household puts him directly under her authority. Moreover, his reason for doing this is a dynamic of power, not of love, not even of pleasure. He is making a statement that he's taking over the family and he's going to be sure that his mother has her rightful place. That is not a statement of love or of tenderness, but of power. The text doesn't come right out and say it, but it's highly probable that Reuben rapes Bilhah. This is Jerry Springer material. This concluding chapter of Jacob's life ends then with a look forward and back. First, his 12 sons are listed according to their mothers. Then his father's death is recorded. And as one sits between these generations, you know, kind of losing the past and looking squarely at the future, this is a time that we tend to evaluate our lives. It's a time we take stock of things. And what does Jacob see when he looks at his life? Is he going to boast on social media about how he sat on the sidelines and did nothing while his daughter was sexually humiliated? Maybe he has a bumper sticker on his car that brags, my sons are mass murderers. The wife he loves has died, and his oldest son, how does he celebrate? By raping his father's concubine. When Jacob went back to Bethel, back to church, back to the house of God, we were all hoping that maybe this would mean a fairy tale ending for this patriarch we've come to appreciate. And that is, after all, how every Christian movie ends, right? The spiritually wayward one goes back to church and everybody lives happily ever after. Jacob cannot be feeling happy about his ever after. One of the great ironies of life is that when we have the people of our past around us, our parents and our grandparents, we tend to focus on the future. I can't wait to get married, start a family, etc. And then when the people of the future, our children and grandchildren, dominate the everyday of our lives, we then tend to focus on the past. 
But part of the story of Jacob here is honor your parents while you have them and lead the next generation toward the Christ and the future he has promised. If you must tell your grandchildren the stories of the glory days, let them be the glory days of God's faithfulness, not of your high school baseball career. Point the future generations toward the only hope for the future, not toward the past that you wish you could reclaim. And it's in so doing, even in old age, that eternal life will be on the horizon. You see, in contrast to Jacob's difficult chapter, literally, Esau rides off into the sunset, proverbially. If Esau was on Facebook, his posts would be the reason you felt terrible about yourself. As a person, as a parent, as a grandparent, chapter 36 paints a rather pleasant picture of Esau. Verse 2, if Jacob married a couple of nice girls, Esau marries the sexy, provocative girls, the girls who promise all the fun of this world. Verses 6 through 8 tell us he was, in his own right, a wealthy man who settled in a rugged land and took it over. Verses 20 to 30 demonstrate how his clan, they were people people. They got along with the inhabitants of the land, made friends with them, mingled and mixed with them. And in fact, his children were so, and grandchildren were so successful, so popular, that they rose to power in this new land, and they became tribal chiefs and eventually kings. And they were good kings. They kept the nation stable for a thousand years. Which, by the way, would be affirmed in the, in the future by the uh, uh, prophets of the Old Testament. All in all, Esau, his children, and his grandchildren did really well. So the final cha- chapter of Jacob's life paints this picture of of a high and then a tragedy, of of something wonderful and then chaos, of pleasant times and then difficult times. It is a painful picture. The final chapter of Esau and his offspring, by comparison, seems rather upbeat. So who would you rather be? Which way would you rather finish things out? Before you answer, look with me at Genesis 37, verse 2. Flip forward to Genesis 37, verse 2. Genesis 37, verse 2 says this. These are the generations of Jacob. If you've been with us for any length of time, I hope you've picked up on the fact that that phrase, these are the generations of, it marks each new subsection of the book of Genesis. And... It gives not the account of the named person, but of his offspring. The generations which come from the named person. So in other words, Genesis 37.2 is the beginning of the author's subsection about Jacob's sons. So what does that mean about Genesis 37.1? It's actually the final word on the life of Jacob. Stop for a moment and think about that. Think about what that means about the structure of the book of Genesis. We must remember this is literature. It is written, it is crafted, it is meant to communicate something to us. 
So in Genesis 35, we have this summary rounding out of the life of Jacob and all of its pain and all of its difficulty and all of its sin and all of its joys with God. Then chapter 36 paints this fairly rosy picture of his brother Esau. And then we come to 37.1. And what does 37.1 say? Well, we need to actually back up to the end of 36 and start there. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to the dwelling places in the land of their possession. But Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. I have contrasted these two generations and families because the Bible contrasts them. Esau and his descendants lived in the land of their possession. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings. Esau and his offspring possessed the place wherein they lived. Jacob did not possess the place he lived. Rather, he sojourned. The life that has it all merely has it all now and has all it's ever going to have. When you own this world... When this world is what you possess, then this world is all that you will ever possess. Finishing well is not about having the best grandkids or the grandkids with the best Facebook posts. It's not about possessing the best houses or cars or jobs. It's not even about having the most put-together lives. Finishing well is about finishing elsewhere. It's about making sure your story doesn't end here. When you and yours are willing to move away from the land of promise into a place of the present, remember promise is always about the future, that's the end. And the way you finish here will be the best you will ever have. You see, if you, if you pursue your best life now, then this will be your best life. For all of Jacob's sin, for all of his weakness, for all of his falls, foibles, and failures, the end of Jacob's life was not in the way he finished this life. It was only the way he went, that's only the way he went out. Jacob wasn't possessing this world, but the next one. Jacob was merely living in the land of sojourning while he awaited the land he would possess. The story of Esau's offspring is a blessed story, to be sure. But that's it. What they had in this life was all they would ever have. Jacob's offspring included the Christ, included the God-man, included the human being who was the rightful heir to all the blessings of God's limitless wealth. By waiting on God, by trusting in God, by holding to God's promises, Jacob was not given a great life now. But he was promised a perfect life forevermore. Do not 
cling to this world. Do not try to possess this world. For the one who would save his life shall lose it. But the one who will lose his life for my name's sake will gain his life. Let's pray. Lord God, the draw of this life, the draw of this world, the the wealth of this world, the power of this world, the beauty of this world, all the things that Esau and his descendants enjoyed are a strong pull on us. Give us strength to turn away. Give us faith to hope in the life that you have promised. Let this be merely the land of our sojourning, a place we are but passing through. Keep us hoping in and focused on the next life. And let that be the legacy that we pass to our imperfect children and grandchildren. Because it is in our imperfections that you, your strength is made known. It is in our failures that your success shines through. It's in our sense of hopelessness that we find our only hope is in you. As difficult as life is, as up and down as it can be, let us, like Jacob, cling to the life you've promised. To the land on the other side, which will one day be our possession. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.